0: So let's, uh, let's turn for a second to uh, Mosiah um, 7. Now remember that uh, in just prior to the days of uh, King Benjamin, uh, there were a large group of people that decided that they would, in mass... Um, Go up to the land of Nephi. Now, which is kind of a fascinating thing. Why were, why were, the, why were, the, why were the, the Nephites in the promised land in the first place? God put them there, right? Why did they go under Mosiah? Why did they go from the land of Nephi, which we think was up in the highlands, and then come down into, Zarahem, down into Zarahemla, where the Mulekites were living? How come they did that? The Lord told them to go for their safety thing. Right. It's getting dicey here to save you. You should go down into Zarahemla. And that worked, right? <coughs> Even though the Lamanites followed them. And there were some battles that came from, as a result of that. Why did these guys then decide to go back up to Nephi? To the land of Nephi? We don't know. <laughs> but they seem to be going counter to everything where, the God, where God was putting them. They go somewhere else. And, and that's kind of what's going to uh, prompt all of the stuff that we're about to, to read today. So uh, there's a, another little mystery here that I haven't been able to quite clear up. Uh, on the morrow, they uh, they send off people to go find. How's our people doing that left under Zenith? And they went up there. How are they doing? We don't know. So Messiah sends a group of people up to go find them. <laughs> Now, twice, we're going to be told, and it came to pass on the morrow, they start up having with them one Ammon. This is Ammon the first, not Ammon the second. This is not Ammon the arms. This is Ammon the... This is Ammon the Mulekite. He being a strong and mighty man and a descendant of Zarahemla. So if he's a descendant of Zarahemla, what do we know about him? What tribe would he come from? Is he one of the seven tribes of Lehi? No. The Nephites, Lamanites, Zoramites. He's a Jew. He's a Jew. Yeah. yeah. Because the Mulekites uh, had had come, and so those under Zarahemla were of Jewish descent. Okay? Now, we make it a point to be told twice by Mormon that he's a descendant of Zarahemla. Why that's important, I don't know yet. Other than the fact that there could have been a large contingent of Mulekites that went with Zenith back to the land of Nephi, why they would do that, I don't know. So it's one of those things. But but when it's pointed out to me twice, I pay attention. I just don't... There's no answers here. Um, Now, they knew not the course they should go. It takes them 40 days They wander. We know from... Alma, that you could actually make the trip in 20 days. So they're kind of lost. It takes twice the time. They go down. And now we're going to... They're going to find... When they get there, here's this group of people. And there's King Limhi. And how did he become king? Well, he was, he was... In verse 9, he was made the king by the voice of the people. And who was his dad? Noah. Noah. Okay. Now, this is going to be kind of important. Actually, this is going to be a lot important as you, because we're really going to be talking a lot today about Limhi. We don't talk much about Limhi, but there's some fabulous information just by the way he handles things and his knowledge base is going to be really pretty good. Um, and, and we know the story that Adam gets there and, and they throw him in jail and then he comes out and Limhi says, how come you were... Out outside the gates and oh, okay, well, when I tell you who I am you're going to be really amazed and excited because I've got news to tell you and why we're here and all that stuff. This is a story we know really well, right? Okay. Now, based on that though there are some really nice lessons that come out of out of this whole discussion because when Limhi finds out that, Zarahem, that uh, they're up from Zarahemla, first of all he gathers them all to the temple I think that's significant so now we're going to get lessons from the temple, uh, things that we learned from this discussion and they're kind of critical I think and they, they really have a really nice application to, to how we see things uh, first of all, we're going to be told uh, step one that zeal without knowledge, being overzealous, can lead to being deceived. Zeal without knowledge can lead us to being deceived. Twice, Zenith is going to say, I was overzealous. What does it mean to be overzealous? Reckless. A bit reckless? Okay.
1: Maybe the excitement of the world versus the peace and calmness of God.
0: Okay, so it may, may, may have defeat. because we're trying to we're trying to separate out here between being obedient and maybe being overzealous. Okay. I think it's being so committed to a cause that right or wrong can not that cause. What and if what if it's a really righteous cause?
1: Yeah. Maybe being so focused on the small.
0: Let me give you an example. Where's our genealogy crazies? Is it possible to be genealogy driven and obedient and genealogy driven and being overzealous? Where would the line be? I mean, is that blasphemy to say that? <laughs>
1: yes. It's probably different. It's balance.
0: Okay. How do you know? How do you know when you're in one camp or the other?
1: I knew somebody that would uh, do... Everybody that, that had the last name, she didn't know if they were related or anything, you know, just just because they had that name, you know. She just I going thought nuts that on was it. a bit overzealous. Yeah, she might have
0: gone a little crazy on it.
1: The why instead of the what. So often we're focusing on the what. What are we doing rather than the why? Why are we doing this? And then that refocuses on how to do the what, if we know the why.
0: What would be the why... Good, good point. What would be the because one of the things that we know from this whole story is that when we are overzealous, we we are deceivable. We can be deceived by unscrupulous people. So, what would be the why behind being now overzealous that would result in me ending up in being deceived and ultimately be ending up in captivity? What's the why? Good point. Why would I be overzealous? Power and recognition. Because everybody would look at you and go, wow. Yeah, genealogy crazy. She, she knows this stuff. Okay? So there's a pride con- component that goes behind being overzealous.
1: It doesn't sound like he had a testimony of God needing them to move to Zarahemla.
0: I do have a question why they went back in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why would... A, let me put in... And I, the minute I say this, it's going to sound like I'm slamming somebody. But let me just suggest a variety of motives. So I'll go ahead and say it anyway. Why would somebody move back to Missouri? Why would a Mormon oh, God. move to Missouri, not because there's a job there? What other reasons would they, for, for going back, I'm going to go live in independence. Mm-hmm. What would be one of the possible reasons? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Yeah. They don't want to miss the big conference. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Want to get there first? Uh huh. Well, if you're living in Utah, where yeah. it's a desert, right, and those that have been to Missouri, it's very it's lush. lush. It's very so, so lush. So, you're going for the climate. And, and, but the soil—yes, is, right—is is, um, is black, and it's—that's it's, right. I'm here, the be, best soil in the world. I, I am. I am going to move to Independence, Missouri, because it has great soil and is better than <laughs> and is better than Delta. Utah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <you've been> <laughs> yes, I have been to Delta. <laughs> <laughs> why else might a faithful Mormon a bit overzealous why might they end up in Missouri? Over anticipating. anticipating, And we gotta get there first. And I gotta get our land because this is where everybody's coming. And what would, it, what would be the difference between, and again, I'm, I'm assigning motive, and I, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm characterizing this, so it's over the top, right? It's character. What would be the difference between a Utah Mormon and a Missouri Mormon in independence?
1: <laughs> wow.
0: Uh, return missionary yeah. Why? Why would they? Why wouldn't the we? D- buy the land. Well, sure. Yeah. No, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and
0: we did.
1: <laughs> we got
0: lots of land there. Why? And why would they do that? <laughs> what is the difference between being a Texas Mormon, Utah Mormon, Iowa Mormon versus being a? I've got. I'm an. I'm an Adamondiomed Mormon. Can you, can you feel the, 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 the possibility that people could be overzealous? It might be the dirt. They might be there for the dirt. Or they might be that, that, what does that say about us, that if we're the ones that have moved there, we're ahead of the curve, that means we are? There's another, oh, should, let me give you another one. A few years ago I wrote an article, and some of you have been in the class for a while, you remember this, I wrote an article that, that ended up in the Enzyme uh, talking about Lehi and take your tents, families and tents into the wilderness. Well, that set off a little firestorm online. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> because there are a group of overzealous Mormons out there who say, we are more ri- We're righteous enough. We're supposed to prepare for the second coming. And, and the way to prepare for the second coming is we have to get our food supply because there is a day coming that, that you're going to be called to the church and they're going to say, have you and your food supply ready at the church tomorrow because we're loading it on trucks. You're going to be taken to tent cities outside between St. George and Las Vegas out in the desert because the pestilence is coming. And those people that have been warned to do it, they're going to just have to, and they're not going to have their food supply. So you're going to actually be able to ride out a lot of the pestilence that's going to, that God is going to send on the wicked. You're going to hang out in tent cities in the wilderness with your food supply because you were righteous. And so that they're going to be able to tell the righteous Mormons from the unrighteous Mormons, the obedient from the non-obedient, because you have you and your food supply in your truck on your way to the desert to set up your tents. And there were people online, as they looked at my article, take your family in tents into the wilderness. They're going, see, see, the, the church is warning subliminally to have your food supply ready because the trucks are coming soon. Now, You've been living in Utah, am I crazy? Are those out there? Totally. Yes, are, I mean, I have good friends I believe they're that. They're a part part of the tent people, oh. right? Right. And and how do you tell the really righteous Mormons from the super righteous, the obedient from the overzealous? They're going to get these little hobby horses that go. How do I distinguish that I am more righteous than my fellow saints? And so we look for these prideful kinds of things. And I think the why is very much that. I think the why is very much we're driven by pride. Why would, these, why would these Nephites want to go back to inhabit the land of their fathers in Nephi? Put themselves back in a dangerous situation where God told them to leave. Because they
1: thought they were right.
0: They thought they were... And, and somehow they're going to be a little bit more righteous as a, as a possibility. I'm going to put... God told us that it was dangerous. We're going to go back into that Situation. Situation. To inhabit the land, and because we're going to be more righteous, I think, is, is one possible motive. We don't know for sure. Yeah.
1: I wonder if they just wanted to go home.
0: Well, well, as I've looked at that, the the thing that's fascinating about this is that they um, they may have had homes, but they've been in Zarahemla for now probably, I don't know, 50, 100 years, something like that. Oh. And why they would now go back, I don't know. I really don't.
1: I thought it was. Cool. Other than the fact
0: that this, uh-huh. is where the, this is where Lehi and our fathers were, and we're going to go back. That's why I think there's a parallel for us in Missouri. This is where our fathers were. Now, just because I would really love to, to move back to Nauvoo has nothing to do with that. <laughs> okay, hey, Mike. <laughs> Because when I talk about moving back to the land of my fathers, I think, okay, yeah, but the mobs are gone, so it's safe. Okay, okay. So, so so, one last thing before we go on here. How, how do we guard then against being overzealous? Follow the prophet, okay? I'm not sure that Mosiah or King Benjamin would say, why don't you guys pack up everything and... Take your tents and go to the land of Nephi. This is something that they kind of did. Now, uh, ultimately, in in Mosiah 21, he's going to say, you're all witnesses this day that Zenith was made king over the people, he being over and zealous to inherit the land of his fathers, he being deceived by the cunning and craftiness of King Laman. Elder McConkie. Okay, so that's not Elder McConkie.
1: It's a, it's a younger
0: picture of him. <laughs> Fanaticism is the devil's substitute for and the perversion of true zeal. It is exhibited in wildly extravagant and overzealous views and acts. It is based either in unreasoning devotion to a cause a devotion which closes the door to investigation and dispassionate study or an overemphasized on some particular doctrine or practice an emphasis which twists the truth as a whole out of perspective Mm -hmm. we get into what we call uh, hobby horses right it's all about I've told the story before let me just I apologize for those of you who heard the story there is an old anecdotal story I don't know if it's completely true or not about uh, in, the, in the early days of the church, uh, there was a, a group of deacons, and they had a, a deacon's quorum advisor, an older gentleman who was, his hobby horse was the second coming. And every lesson that came up, he would tell about the second coming. And it was always about the second coming. And finally, the deacons uh, finally got so kind of tired of all of these things. They snuck into his chicken coop one night. They took an egg. And they wrote on the egg, uh, the second coming will be next Thursday. And they slid it underneath the chicken. So, so Deacon's quorum advisor comes rolling out in the morning and he's gathering the eggs and everything. And he gets the eggs. And there it is. It's written It's written on the egg. Okay. So he gets to church. And he brings the egg with him, and he tells the bishop he needs a
1: minute. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh.
0: And now the deacons are sitting, like, getting ready to pass the sacrament, and they're a little mortified because it's like it's a, this is about to come home to roost. <laughs> <laughs> see, what, see what I did there? Fun <laughs> intended. <Okay. laughs> yeah. And so he gets up, and the, and the bishop gives him a moment, and he says... You've been laughing at me for the longest time. Here's the proof: the second coming is coming next Thursday, and he starts waving the egg around. Okay. Well, it turned out in this little community um, that the the bishop was a little man from from Denmark, and he's sitting there listening to this, and he knows he has to make some kind of reply. And so after after the man sits down, the the little uh, uh, Danish bishop gets up and he says. Um I'm not very smart and you all know that and I'm not a scriptorian and you know that too but one thing I do know that when the second coming is coming it will be announced from the mouth of a prophet and not from the bowels of a chicken <laughs> I think sometimes we kind of get into those. those Bruce R. goes on. He says, Through the ages, religious fanatics have fought and died on the field of battle in false causes in the church. There are those that become fanatics. Stable and sound persons are never fanatics. They do not ride gospel hobbies. So I just think we have to be so careful that we don't get caught up. And it's about balance and it's about humility, and if we find ourselves pridefully getting into some areas and we are better at all of this than everybody else, we are we are eligible for zealous overzealousness. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's the next part. So let that's lesson number one. Lesson number two. When overzealousness blinds us, our Our iniquities then place us in bondage. How could overzealousness put us in bondage and lead us actually to iniquity? How could that happen? I was just reading iniquities. Yeah. How could it do it?
1: We're destroyed by our own power.
0: if we go back to uh, in fact let's let's go to 8 for just a second no let's go to 9 right. Zenith says I was overzealous to, oh, to inherit the land of our fathers then what's going to happen he says I, we were deceived by the king they were lazy 12 they were lazy and idolatrous they desired to bring us into bondage. So, how, But how did they end up in bondage? How? are back to 7. He's going to say... Uh, look at verse 20. This is King Zenith talking to his people... And again, the same God has brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem, has kept and preserved His people until now. And behold, it is because of what? Our iniquities and abomination that has brought us into bondage. How did they end up in bondage? It was their iniquities. Iniquities, iniquities. It's their sins. They can say, well, it was it was the king that put them... Under bondage. But it wasn't. It was their sins. How do our sins place us in bondage? One thing our sins do is it blocks the spirit. So that we're not able to to hear it very well. You're, you're right. So now we're kind of more adrift on the ocean. Okay. How else? Yeah. Sometimes it reduces our choices. How does it it do that? He says it reduces our choices. How does it do that?
1: Well, it might be the kind of sin that is uh, uh, very hard to do
0: it. you're bound to do it over and over and over. And just can't help yourself. One of the things that we have found in, uh, in working with addictions uh, is, and we're, we're becoming very, very good now at being able to look at a brain scan and be able to say that when uh, if you have somebody that is uh, kind of at peace and relaxed, the front part of our brain is all lit up as an MRI. Okay, When we take somebody, for instance, that is addicted to pornography, and, and you give them any kind of temptation or stimulus, the blood, you can see it on an MRI, the blood shifts from the front part of the brain to the back part of the brain. It activates the more primal parts of our brain, but it's blood leaving the front part of our brain that leaves us less able to make proper decision-making. So we are more likely to be deceived because we don't think nearly as well. Now when that happens... Now we have the ability to kind of uh, be then placed in bondage because ultimately the brain can then begin to develop new neural pathways about how it handles stress, how it handles pain, how it handles uh, pressure. For most of it, the, the front part of your brain says, if there's a problem coming up, I need to figure out a way to solve it. When an addiction is in place, your brain goes, we just need to find a way to soothe it. We need to find a way to mellow it. We need to find a way to just feel better. It won't solve it, but at least we'll feel better while we're not solving it. And for most of those, the the brethren especially, and and women, but those that really struggle with pornography, we talk about how long it takes from being uh, some kind of stimulus to them responding to it and it can happen it's, it's about that fast. Amazing thing about pornography it's like two clicks. Here's a picture, there's a click and I'm there. It happens before the front part of their brain ever goes, what? what? What was that? Okay. So it's this whole idea then of um, that we can then be easily placed in bondage Think about, for for instance, if you look at uh, section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which talks about the Word of Wisdom. What do we find out about, in about the first verse of section 89, what do we find out about men in the last days? They're what? Conniving? Yeah, what's the word that's used? Conspiring, that's the word. Conspiring to do what? Those that, those that sell alcohol and those that sell cigarettes and those kind of things, how do they connive? Yeah, false advertising. And so what they're selling you is you're going to feel these kind of things, but really they don't tell you about the addictive part of this okay so so we actually set ourselves up then to have some kind of uh, it then places us into bondage bondage to our addiction bondage to our sins I, I was I was listening not long ago on, on the news there was a lady that had that uh, uh, had a, an addiction to crack crack cocaine and she had, she had little kids and, and the police had repeatedly been over, CPS had been over and said to her if, you, if we catch you one more time using you're going to lose custody of your kids and it scared her to death. There were a lot of tears and pain. And still, I'm sorry. I, I love my kids. I don't want to lose my kids. I will be better. And then she used that knife. You go, well, what, what kind of decision making is that to not. And then they, somebody called. The, the kids were gone the next day. And you go, well, why couldn't she just stop? Which is the same thing that so many wives are saying about their husbands that struggle with pornography. How, doesn't he love me? Why doesn't he just quit? Doesn't he recognize the pain it causes? Why doesn't he just stop? Why doesn't he just stop? Because there's a bondage in place. There's a bondage that, that when we are deceived, we're placed into a place where someone unscrupulous can come along and place us in bondage. Because we don't think, brothers and sisters, as Mormons and as, as, as Latter day Saints, do you realize how naive we are? <laughs> we are really naive. Because we don't think conniving, vengeful, hateful, twisting, subversive thoughts about other people. They do. <laughs> they, they're, they're thinking those thoughts. And we just kind of walk right into it. It's easy for us to be deceived. Now, if the alternative to that is to become more bitter and and caustic and view the world always untrustingly, I'm saying I'm glad to be uh, I'm glad to be kind of a naive Mormon. I don't want to be thinking thoughts like that. It means that sometimes we're going to be taken advantage of. But at the same time, we don't think their thoughts, and their thoughts are like they were in this experience. They were designed on putting us in bondage. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, that's lesson two. Lesson three. Once in bondage to a wicked king, a grievous tribute must be paid, and we prosper not. If we back up here to 29... Lord has said, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doing shall be as a stumbling block unto them. We, once we're in captivity, we stop prospering. Okay? So that's lesson three. Now, this is where I think this becomes kind of important to us. Because none of us have had the experience, I don't think, of leaving uh, the land of our fathers to go inhabit something else, whether we were told to be there or not, and being overzealous. But this is where this really has some application for us. The next lesson is, once we are in bondage, we cannot save ourselves. How many of us are in bondage? Let me let me say this again. How many of you are fallen? How many? Are, yes. So let me ask again. How many of you are in bondage? Thank you. We all are. By virtue of being mortal, we are fallen, which places us under the bondage of sin. How many of you can save yourself from bondage? You can. I have. Yeah. But what'd you do? Yes, you did. In other words, you said, I can't save myself, but Jesus can. So I'm going to put myself into a place where I can be rescued. You got rescued on Christmas Day. Yes, you did. Okay. Uh, once we're in bondage, we cannot save ourselves because our many strugglings will be in vain. So I, I love this that this hope that comes to these guys. When here comes... Uh, Limhi telling his people at the temple, he spake unto them on his wise saying, O my people, lift up your heads and be comforted. For the time is at hand and is not far distant that we shall no longer be in subjection to our enemies. Yes, we were overzealous. Yes, we got deceived. Yes, we are, we've done these things. Yes, my father was kind of a jerk. <laughs> but the time is not far distant." We will no longer be in subjection to our enemies. So we're now going to be rescued. But then comes that important line right at the end. And it's a reminder to all of us that have to be rescued. And that is that there's, there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. I've said before a few times, when we look at the, at the handcart Companies, those greater moments of the, the, the greatest drama of the handcart companies, Willie and Martin handcart companies, Rocky Ridge for the, for the Willie company, and, and Martin's Cove for the Martin handcart company, and the last crossing of the Sweetwater, those two experiences. Brothers and sisters, remember, in both cases they'd already been rescued. The rescuers had already found them. As they were making their way up Rocky Ridge, the rescuers were walking beside them. And there still was an effectual struggle to be made. So sometimes in our process of being rescued from our bondage of sin, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to still have to be fighting. And there's still an effectual struggle. Does that make sense? And, so there's an effectual struggle, but we always keep in mind what? We can't rescue ourselves. We're going to be struggling, but all of our struggles will not be enough. We still require grace. We still require the atonement. Because all of our effectual struggles without the rescuer will never work because we're in bondage and we can't do it on our own. There's the beautiful lesson that comes out of here. Okay? All right. You didn't know there were all these lessons contained in this little, fast little story, did you? There, but, there's, but wait, there's one more. <laughs> God rescues us when He actually sends people to go find us, and they may look like missionaries, and they may look like home teachers. And they may look like a bishop. God rescues us when we turn to Him. Let's go back to verse 33. Because there there are two kind of requirements here. Now the promise of the Lord is fulfilled. You're smitten and afflicted. We'll get into that one in a second. But if you will turn to the Lord with a... Full purpose of heart. Listen closely. Where does overzealousness live? Where does pride live? It's the way we see ourselves. It's the way we think. It's the way we view ourselves. Where does full purpose to the war, towards the Lord live? In our, In our heart. It comes from the deepest, most honest, sincere part of us. And that's why we're, we're to love Him with all our hearts. I, the Lord, require the hearts of men and a willing, unzealous mind. I, the Lord, require the hearts of men. So we get rescued when we turn to Him with a full purpose of heart. What's our purpose? I just want to be saved. I just want to be rescued. I'm in bondage, can't do it by myself, I just need to be saved. Now, does that sound a little bit like our Christian brothers and sisters out there? That's because so much of where they are is about 90% true. Trust Jesus. I'm a wretch like me. And and trust in Jesus and and I will be saved. Yeah, that's that's our philosophy. That's our belief. It really is. We're saved by grace. In spite of all we can do. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, we have to serve, put our trust in Him and then serve Him with what? All of us. So we're taking that diligent, that overzealousness, that energy, that focus, that drive, and where are we putting it? Rather than trying to get back to Independence, Missouri and get there before everybody else and buy up the land before it's all gone, we, instead of taking all of that zealous planning, where are we putting it? With all diligence to What? serve. Isn't that amazing? Take all that wonderful drive and just love the heck out of people. <laughs> Take that drive and just serve till you drop. Just, you know, we had a started yesterday morning, had a high council meeting at 6.30 you know, high, the state presidency was there about an hour before and we just went and went. And then we did all of our meetings and everything and and Then I had the the, uh, elders quorum president said, there's a visit that we need to make. Would you come with me to to go visit? Right after church. And I'm thinking, I've already been here for six hours. Okay, I'll come. And as I'm sitting in there, and, and we're talking to this wonderful member of the church, this elders quorum president and I, I'm just thinking, it's so good for me to be here. I'm... I'm really glad that I got over my bad self (laughs) and got over my attitude and just said, you know what, this particular moment may be the best thing I've done all day long in spite of all those other meetings. And when we serve, sometimes we're we're battling that part of us that's still kind of in bondage to mortality. (laughs) We're trying to get outside of ourselves. So... All right. So, questions on any of those? You kind of see the see the pattern. Okay. you discuss yes. verse thirty-one? Okay. Yes, yes. Hang on to that. That's where we're going. Okay. Now. I need you to know that one of the things that I have come to to really realize is how much respect I have for King Limhi. (laughs) Limhi is kind of a minor character in the Book of Mormon, right? The son of of Noah. Uh, But I have to tell you, as I've been studying chapters 7 and 8, Limhi was a powerhouse. And we don't have very much from him. I would love to see a lot more from Limhi, because his understanding of the scriptures and understanding of the history of Israel is really good. is very powerful. And his and the research that he's done to be able to do this is amazing to me. So let me let, let me hit you with a couple of things that that he comes up with. Uh, first of all. Let's go back to
1: Mosiah
0: 7, 29. So, he's got got Ammon standing in front of him. Ammon saying, hey, we're here to rescue you. Great, there's an effectual struggle to be made. We're so glad and everything. And and I'm I'm grateful. And now we're going to finally be brought out of bondage. And yet, my, my dad was kind of a turkey. Um... Now, we're, we're going to find out uh, pro- pretty quick within the next couple of chapters here. We're going to find out that I believe that King Noah was actually a pretty staunch Deuteronomist. He was very steeped in that salvation comes from the law of Moses. He really believed that solidly and that he could justify so much of the other things that he was doing based on the fact that he kept the law of Moses strictly. Well, that's, that's a Deuteronomist. That, so King, ben, King Noah had some great, pretty good knowledge of the law. They lived the law of Moses pretty strictly. King Limhi, his son, is going to understand much more than that. He's going to transcend his dad and understand what really needs to be done. Now, after so all of this, uh, he's going to say, speaking about, here comes his, the rescuers to get him out, his, out of uh, the land of Nephi, For behold, the Lord has said, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, which is done, I will hedge up their ways. And then he's going to say, uh, again, if my people sow filthiness, they shall reap the chaff thereof in the whirlwind. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but I want you to see in 30 and 31, I almost did a slide on this. 30 and 31, we're going to get a Hebrew parallelism. And he's quoting from a scripture that we do not have. It's not available anywhere in the Old Testament. It's probably coming from the brass plates. But it's very Hebraic in the fact that it parallels and it teaches us something. And the fact that Limhi would use it shows something about Limhi's understanding. Look at this parallelism. There's two. There's two. There's a. There's a root, and then the second part of the word changes, and then the same root, and then the the word is different. But those two parallel. Okay. Um, Thirty. If my people sow filthiness, they shall do what? Reap the chaff. Okay. Then look at thirty-one. If my people sow filthiness, same root, they will reap. The east wind. Okay, now, let's take a step back so we can understand this. Uh, Because again, this doesn't exist anywhere in the Old Testament, this this powerful thing coming from the Lord to a prophet. We don't know what prophet, but Limhi has studied this well enough to know it. So, let's take this first part. Uh, If my people sow filthiness, they shall reap the chaff thereof in the whirlwind. Now, let, let, let's talk about reaping for a second. and We've talked about this before. If you are an ancient Israelite farmer, how do you reap and end up with chaff? So, so say it again. Okay, so we're going to take, take our wheat and we're going to throw it up in the air and we're counting on the breeze. We're counting on the wind. To be able to do what? Blow out the chaff, and then the wheat drops through, and then we have the wheat. And if we haven't got enough, then we do it again. We take, we throw it up, and the chaff keeps blowing off, and we just end up with the wheat. Okay, and the chaff blows off. Okay. Now, if my people sow filthiness, they shall reap the chaff. Now. Why would you, if you are sowing filthiness, why would you even get to the point where you are uh, reaping? If you just reap bad stuff. What were you expecting would would happen when it came to harvest time? When it's time to reap. What are you expecting? I mean, would you spend the time to plant? Nourish, uh, harvest, take to the reaping shed, and do that whole thing because you're expecting chaff. Wanting chaff. Somehow you're going to harvest chaff. What do they think they're about to harvest? Probably wheat. But when do they find out that there's no wheat coming, there's just chaff? When it's too late. (laughs) Exactly right. So in other words, what you're getting is people that have sown filthiness and somehow believe they're going to harvest something else. In that day, there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done great miracles in thy name? And he will say unto them, I never knew you. And, and scripturally, if you actually look at that, what that is really saying is, and I will say to them, you never knew me. How many people are sowing filthiness and thinking they're going to get something different? Can I bring it down to a, a, another level? How many well-meaning parents... Believe that if I sow a very rigid, hardcore, you will keep the gospel while you're under my roof, and I'm going to make sure and I'm going to watch you closely. They believe that at the end of the day, they will sow a loving, obedient child. A lot. A lot. And it's well meaning. I expected, I did this for your own, yeah, I I, I was a pretty harsh father, but I really believed this was going to be for your best good. So I'm going to do all this stuff, and then I'm totally shocked when you're kind of, when you won't, you you don't stay in touch with me when you grow up and you move away. Or you leave the church, or you hate the church, or you're, in other words, what has been been reaped, what has been harvested is completely different than I thought I was sowing. I thought that if I sowed lots of partying and having a great time and lots of laugh, that what I would harvest somewhere down the road would be a happy life. How come I sowed all of this stuff and I, and I harvested, I reaped addictions and unhappiness and sadness? <laughs> I thought I could sow sleeping in on a lot of Sundays... And somewhere down the road, I was going to harvest a testimony. Oftentimes, I find that those that are sowing filthiness think that they're actually kind of sowing something else. Or that something will intervene in the way and they will still get to harvest the good stuff even though they've been sowing filthiness. And it's an easy trap to get caught into. Can you think of any other examples like that? Yeah. I mean, those two times
1: when we're sowing, we don't consider the harvest. Yeah.
0: We're just sowing because... We're just sowing
1: and we're not really thinking about what the end result is going to
0: be. Well, I think that's true. Uh, it is amazing to me how often I'm working with clients that have been depressed or that their self-esteem is really bad. They never expect that they will harvest a celestial kingdom. They believe. In fact, I had somebody tell me that just the other day. That they believed that they were really kind of on... That on the, the uh, telestial kingdom is not supposed to be so bad. That they really believed that at their very, very best, the best they could hope for is to harvest the telestial kingdom. Okay, so Hitler and Stalin are there, but it's supposed to be nicer than... That's kind of what I deserve. It's that it's that sense of not knowing that I can't save myself from bondage and he has a better plan for me, but I think that's a good point. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, we have a we have song in our hymn book and
1: I think it's called We Are Sowing. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. And they decided to get up and give their wives and children, you know, for hurrah for Zion. Yeah, yes. and, they, and they talked about how they were sowing through their tears. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, now.
0: So, now. so now let's put the next part on here. So this is, if you understand this process. Now, he's going to say, If my people sow, verse 31, If my people sow filthiness, they shall reap the east wind. Okay. What would be an east, what's an example of an east wind in the Middle East? In some parts of the Middle East it's called a Sirocco. It is a hot wind that comes off the desert. And what would it do to crops? To dry them right out. Yeah. 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 And and in a lot of cases in the in the scriptures, if you look through the Old Testament, you're going to find um, that the idea of the East Wind is paralleled to Um, uh, God's judgment pouring out and so instead of being a light breeze that separates the wheat from the chaff now you get a much stronger wind that's what's in the parallelism the the wind separating the wheat from the chaff now here comes a strong east wind and it just dries everything out and destroys now let let me me show you one other thing and and again I don't want to get too technical on all this but I really don't, I would love to know where, where is quoting from. Because I find it fascinating, he is, there is another parallel to this whole scenario, including the east wind, that is actually in Ezekiel. Um, and so, so come with me for just a sec to Ezekiel 17. I put this in here. Ezekiel seventeen. Um, let, let, let's take ourselves back, to kind of Old Testament time. when, when is Ezekiel? Uh, when is he alive? When is he prophesying? Do we know? Before Jeremiah. Ezekiel is one of the prophets of the exile. Well, remember where we've got Zedekiah that is sucked up to the Egyptians and and Nebuchadnezzar has placed him on the throne and and Zedekiah is sucking up to the Egyptians to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar goes, uh, you're not going to be allowed to do this. I'm going to pluck off the, the bright and the brightest and I'm going to take them off to Babylon. Remember we talked about that where the, the children get to Babylon and they say, our fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. They did bad and we got the consequences. And so he, they grabbed Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they haul them all off to Babylon. Remember all that? Ezekiel is one of the prophets of the exile. They're going to be hauled off. Now, Ezekiel, well, in his writing in, from Babylon, from exile, they've been... They've been pulled out of the land of their fathers, listen closely, and placed under the direction of an unrighteous king. And, and verse 3: the Lord God has said, A great eagle with great wings, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar, long wind, full of feathers, diverse colors, came into Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar, he cropped off the top of the young twigs. He came in and he grabbed the best and the brightest, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Ezekiel. And he's hauled them off to Babylon. Okay? The uh, highest rent. And carrying it off into the land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. And that city is Babylon. Okay? He's hauled them off. Uh, he took a seed of the land. He planted it in a fruitful field. Uh, in, in the past, you'd had this in Jerusalem. Okay? Seven, there's another eagle of great wings and many feathers, and the vine did bend her roots towards him. Zedekiah was sucking up to Egypt. Egypt is the other eagle. Okay? And you know what? Unfortunately, that, that plant in, in, in uh, Jerusalem, Israel, I planted it in a good soil by great waters, that it might bring forth branches, that it might bear forth fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. Oh, wait a minute! We've heard this story before, haven't we? What is this? This is another. Ezekiel also has access to Zenus's writing because this is Jacob five, and all of the parable of the vineyard and the tame olive trees. Okay. They're, they're, these guys know about each other and they've studied each other. In the same way that President Monson will quote Brigham Young, who will then quote you know, and and uh, Elder Bednar is quoting Elder Perry, and I mean these guys are quoting, they understand each other, they're well studied. Hey? Okay? And God says, Shall it prosper? Pull up the roots, cut off the fruit, where shall it be planted, shall it not prosper? And then look at 10. Behold, being planted, shall it prosper, shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind toucheth it, when those judgments of God, which is the east wind, are going to pour out, is it going to be planted in such a way that it's that is deeply rooted that it can withhold the judgments of God? And he's saying, no, they got they got uprooted. The east wind destroyed it because it wasn't prepared. Okay. So we get so all of, of, of Ezekiel 17 is this great and wonderful and really nice parallel to everything that's happening with Limhi where they have been. They've been plucked out, they got moved, it wasn't their doing, their fathers did it. They ended up putting them through their overzealousness in the land of Nephi. And then here comes the judgments of God and the east wind comes pouring out and it destroys Noah. And then they get put under bondage and it's like a 50% tax and our life is really hard. And for Limhi to be quoting this kind of stuff says to me how deeply Limhi understood the whole, this whole imagery thing. Here's the one problem with this. Ezekiel leaves Jerusalem before, Limhi, or before Lehi ever... or Lehi leaves first before Ezekiel is ever taken. Ezekiel is after the time of Limhi. They've already left. And we get this amazing parallel to Limhi that Limhi is quoting, that Ezekiel is quoting. Who are they quoting? Somebody else (laughs) that we don't have. But it's, it's it's powerful enough that this Limhi, at this moment, trying to somehow have his people understand what's going on, he says... You know what? We are just like the prophecies that were made of Jerusalem that if we didn't stand firm in where we were rooted, we might be destroyed. We might end up in bondage to a wicked king. How did we end up in bondage? Well, our fathers have eaten sour grapes overzealously and the children's teeth are on edge and we're in bondage and we can't get out. Did you see the parallel? And, and for Limhi to be quoting this and understanding this scenario is amazing to me. There's a real depth here to it. It's really kind of exciting, I think, for, for a gospel scholar looking at all this. Um, so, so let me mention one other thing about this. And I think there's a, there's a tremendous parallel for each of us. If we, have, if we have King Limhi, who has this kind of gospel knowledge, who is his father again? Noah Noah. So we have overzealous Zenith Who gives birth to wicked prideful Deuteronomous Noah Wouldn't it have been easy for uh, Limhi to follow in his father's footsteps? Absolutely How come he didn't? He had a good mom. (laughs) For one thing, he saw his father's example and he learned from it. Now, how many, let, let me just say, how many of you, either in your own experiences or with people that you know, know come from really dysfunctional, destructive families... With a history, and you go back, and sometimes when I'm doing the histories of people, and we go, okay, yeah, my dad was an alcoholic, and his dad was an alcoholic, you know, and this guy, you know, beat his wife, and you know, you see this really destructive genealogy going behind him, and then right into then then here comes this person that is a child of that kind of destructiveness that says basically like. Gandalf does in the Lord of the Rings and he goes this shall not pass <laughs> all of this craziness stops here all of this bad stuff ends with me I will do whatever therapy work change join the church it ends that stuff ends and it starts with me and I start a different set of traditions for my kids going forward that's limb I will not continue the destructiveness of the past and we say, well, we're kind of bound history by our, gen- our genetics and by our history. Not necessarily. If we're willing to say, if you have a destructive history in your family, and you've got a weird set of genetics and, it, and you're battling all of this, and you look backwards, if you stand there and go, "I'm in bondage, I need to be rescued. I can't do it myself. When those rescuers come, I'm going to serve with full purpose of heart. I'm expecting that the Lord's going to rescue me. Then none of that craziness has to move on to the next generation. You stand in the crossroads and it stops with you. Does that make sense? And Limhi is one of those people to me. He could have easily perpetuated. His His dad was getting rich by really kind of going nutso. And he said, no, I'm going to be a gospel scholar. And he starts studying all of this stuff. And I'm going to show you one more before we get done that shows an incredible depth on his part.
1: I was just thinking he was probably in the same court when Abinadi was in there and Alma was in there might have been. and hearing all the prophesying from um, Abinadi and he
0: believed it. Could very of easily have, have said, you know, if, if I'm King Noah and I've got, uh, I've got my court of priests and I've got mm-hmm. Alma sitting on there, you're right. Maybe my successor, mm-hmm. Limhi, might also. Have, I hadn't thought of that. That's, yeah. a, that's, that's a good point. Enough that I could hear and, and remember what Abinadi was saying. Great point. Okay. Yeah. I put you there to to turn the tide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's just saying that she had a friend that had been in one of those circumstances and wondering how come she was put in that position. Uh, I've, I've I've mentioned before I had a I had a friend of mine that uh, that I went to school with, and his family was his family was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, I know that dad was was probably schizophrenic. I know that his. I know that his brother was schizophrenic. His mom had clinical depression, as did his sister. Uh, it was just kind of this really struggling family. Dad would show up went, occasionally and come to church in just kind of overalls and no t-shirt. You know, he just go sit on the. You know? And he wasn't a farmer. He lived in a suburban neighborhood. Okay, and yet my my friend was president of his seminary and went on to become an attorney in Salt Lake. And you just wonder, how come he rises out? How it, it, All that stuff stopped somehow with him. How he did that, I don't know. But I, I know that we can be change agents in, on the road between past generations and what we send going forward. By the way, there's a double-edged sword to that. Can can, can uh, generations of righteousness then stop with one turkey in the road? And And suddenly when somebody's really struggling... Their subsequent generations now behind them aren't don't have access to the gospel and all that. That's hard. That's hard when we watch, and so it actually kind of works both ways. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. Based on that, I think we got. I want to give you one more limb height. Ah. We may or may not get to Sears. We'll see. Okay. After everybody's sent home, Ammon and Limhi are going to have a discussion about Sears. Because uh, Limhi, being such a great studier of the gospel and of scriptures... He's got scriptures. The problem is, is that they they sent people off to try and find Zarahemla. Couldn't find it, and who'd they find instead? The Jaredites. So they're going to come back with twenty-four gold plates. Gosh, I really love to study these things too. It's more books of scripture. Can I study it? But I can't read it. It's kind of hard. You have anybody that can take care of that? Mosaic. Yeah, we got one of those people, and he's back there in Zarahemla, and he's got interpreters. He's got a Urim and Thummim. This is a second set of Urim and Thummim, separate from the brother of Jareds, we think. But yeah, he can read it because he's got the ability. He's got interpreters, and he can read that. Wow, that's really cool. Well, seers are must be greater than prophets. Yeah, prophets do that, but seers, are, prophets, seers, and revelators can see. What, I mean, they have this great discussion. Okay, and then we get these words from from Limhi, and it's really subtle. But if you see what it is, I, to me, it's it's incredibly powerful. Limhi uh, said, uh, Ammon makes it into speaking of these words. Uh, Doubtless a great, and Limhi says, doubtless a great mystery is contained in these plates. These interpreters were doubtless prepared for the purpose of unfolding all such mysteries to the children of men. Wow, and I think what he's saying is, man, I wish I had some interpreters. I love reading scriptures, and boy, would I love a set of interpreters. Okay? Then he says this, and He says, Oh, how marvelous are the works of the Lord, and how long doth he suffer his people. Yea, how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men. For they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Now, let me back up. When we've talked before about the Deuteronomist and Josiah changing how things worked and all of that. And we're instead of relying on visions, we're going to rely that the law of Moses saves us. And we may have to do some editing in the Bible to make sure that everything points towards the law of Moses. And they did a lot of overhauling of Deuteronomy and all that. Part of what was removed a lot... Was the older religion. And most scholars these days. Especially at BYU. They classify it into two cases. There is the Deuteronomist belief. And then there is the wisdom theology. The wisdom theology is the older one. It is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob theology. It is what they believed. And it is based on visions. And it is based on that the law of Moses points us to this. But it's, it's trusting in prophets who have visions and can tell us what's coming. It's based on them being seers. Because a seer wouldn't necessarily fit into a law of Moses kind of thing. Because they may have visions that would add to the law of Moses. We can't do that. But the older theology is called the wisdom theology. We have some cases of the wisdom theology that weren't taken out of the Bible. Let me give you an example of it. Is it uh, Proverbs four, five through nine? So I just hopped over here to Proverbs four. Get wisdom, David says. Get understanding. Forget it not, or Solomon. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not. Wisdom in. The old theology wisdom is always female. Oh, i wonder that... the, There is a sense she's, she's wondering why the, the the wisdom theology is that uh, this is Asherah, this is maybe the the wife of God kind and, yes, of thing. It's and, it, and it's feminine all the way through. Yeah, and and so whenever they talk about wisdom, the the that is what uh, and 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 that is where. Uh, uh, the Greeks turned it into uh, wisdom is uh, sophistry, sophie philosophy is the wisdom but it's always a her when we stood in uh, in uh, Ephesus and saw the, what was left of the massive library at Ephesus one of the statues there was of sophie, Sophia her wisdom and it was all, and always her personified as a female. Okay, um, forsake her not; she shall preserve thee. Love, love her; she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Exalt her; she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thus, when thou dost embrace her, she will give thine head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Um, 13, take hold of instruction. Let, let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. You just get this wonderful sense. So in my mind, there is no accident at all whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> 20, he's going to go, uh, for they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Limhi totally gets it. And he's totally steeped in the ancient wisdom theology. He gets it. And he gets that it's more important than the law of Moses. That, to me, that, there was a depth. That, that just jumped out at me. And I went, wow. Lemhi's a dude, man. This guy's got... <laughs> he's really done some studying. Okay? Um, and then, by the way, he's going to then finish, and he's actually going to quote... Uh, Abinadi. Now, he may have, he may or might not have been in the court of Noah. I think there's a pretty good chance that he was, but he must have been very, at the very least, at the at the burning of Abinadi because he's going to pick up on Abinadi's last words. Abinadi's last words. Or jump over seventeen. He's saying about Noah: "Yea, shall be smitten on every hand; shall be driven." And scattered to and fro, even as a wild flock is driven by wild and ferocious beasts. Knowing in that day you shall be hunted, and you will be taken by the hands of your enemy, and you will suffer even as I the pains of death by fire. Okay. So fascinating. Then that Limhi would then say, "Those that will not seek understanding, like my dad, that I have tried to change his ways." They are as a wild flock which fleeth the shepherd and scattered and are driven and devoured by the beasts of the forest. And he's going to quote a Benedict. Okay. bit heavy or are you having fun? You're swimming well. Uh, by the way, let me, so we're not going to have time to do the seer thing, but let me just show you one last thing that I think was kind of fun to give you an idea about where Lammai is and it is verse 15 of of chapter 7 when he gets the people at the temple he's going to say to them behold we are in bondage to the Lamanites we are taxed with a tax which is grievous to be born and now behold our brethren will deliver us out of bondage or out of the hand of the Lamanites and then listen And we will be their slaves. For it is better that we be slaves to the Nephites than to pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites. Under the law of Moses, could you be a slave? That's right. We wouldn't call it a slave, we'd call it an indentured servant. If you're in debt, I can put you in debtor's prison, or at the very least, I can make you a. you're in debt, you're my slave until you've paid off the debt. That's a very law of Moses uh, thing to do. And, and he's saying, I know if you bought rescue us out of bondage, that we will then go back and we're, and we're going to be happy slaves because it's better to be slaves to you guys than fifty percent tax to the Lamanites. What did King Benjamin do? when he was changing the affairs of the people about slavery remember? uh
1: He said he's been labored with his own hand. Yeah, but he says
0: specifically I have not allowed you oh, to, to, to make slaves of one another. Yeah. Um Uh I'm not gonna find it. That would be too easy. <coughs> He's going to tell them in verse thirty-four they're indebted to their heavenly father. <coughs> anyway, you may be able to find it later on. But anyway, he changes he changes the 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 affairs of the people, and he takes out the slavery component out of the law of Moses that they were living. I'm not going to allow you to be slaves.
1: Uh, I think, is
0: it two. Is it 2? I think. two? what? Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, I was looking at that, um, but he's going to say specifically somewhere else that he wouldn't allow them to make slaves of one another. Yeah, that's what
1: it says there. That's, yeah, that's okay. Oh, but it says above it. It's above my feet. Thank you. Oh.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> Nor that you should make slaves of one another. He took that component out. Limhi doesn't know that yet. Oh, yeah. That's why it is that, the, that when they finally get everybody back together, one of the first things in Mosiah 8, back over here in Mosiah 8 3. He also rehearsed unto them the last words which King Benjamin had taught them. Let me tell you how the rules now work, and it's based on the five don't steal, don't plunder, uh, don't commit adultery, no manner of wickedness. Those five. And by the way, we don't do slaves. Yes, you're in bondage. Yes, you're going to be rescued. But let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the atonement. That's how bondage works. You're indebted to your Heavenly Father. Okay? So, thank you. Alright. Well, again, Limhi is an, is an intriguing character to me because of his depth of knowledge, and we only have these couple of chapters of him actually responding to things, but the where he goes and the stuff that he draws on is amazing to me. His depth of knowledge and understanding is way beyond what should have come from the son of Noah. But he did anyway. So my, my testimony is that regardless of our circumstance, that we can be change agents, regardless of our the things that we have been exposed to, we can be change agents. That all of us are in bondage is true. That all of us need to be rescued is true. That sin binds us. It wraps us in flaxen cords as Nephi says. But that we can be freed and be delivered. Uh, I bury my testimony that these were very inspired men and and what a blessing it is to read what they have for us. Uh, And I leave that with you in Jesus' name, amen. amen.